Hi, everyone. You're listening to the latest episode of New Things Under the Sun by Matt Clancy. That's me. This week, we're going to talk about how long does it take to go from science to technology. But before going into the uh, meat of this post, I wanted to give a quick update on New Things Under the Sun. So I really enjoy writing this newsletter, and I have gotten good feedback on it, but it does take a lot of time to do. And you might have noticed that there were only three newsletters in the last six months. So I'm very pleased to announce that I've actually received funding from Emergent Ventures and a go-ahead from Iowa State University to carve out a bit of time specifically for this project, uh, at least for the next year. And so going forward, the plan is going to be to release a newsletter and an audio version like this every other Tuesday. And after a year's up, I'll reassess things. So if you want to help make this project a success, you can subscribe or you can tell other people about it. Anyway, thanks everyone for your interest. So moving on, it does seem clear that if there's a better understanding of the regularities that govern our world, that that should lead in time to better technology. That is science should lead to innovation. But how long would we expect that process to take? And this week, we'll talk about two complementary lines of evidence that suggest 20 years is sort of a good rule of thumb. So to begin, James Adams was one of the first to take a crack at this in a serious sort of quantitative way. In 1990, he published a paper titled Fundamental Stocks of Knowledge and Productivity Growth in the Journal of Political Economy. And Adams wanted to see how strong was the link between academic science and the performance of private industry in subsequent decades. Now, Adams had two pieces of data that he needed to knit together. On the science side, he had data on the annual number of new journal articles in nine different fields for the period 1908 to 1980. And on the private industry side, he had data on the productivity of 18 different manufacturing industries over 1966 to 1980. Now, productivity here is a measure of how much output a firm can squeeze out of the same amounts of capital labor and any other inputs they use. So if a firm can get more output or even higher quality outputs from the same amount of capital and labor and other inputs, economists usually assume that that reflects improved technology. And it can mean other things. Click on the newsletter for some idea about what that could be. And what Adams basically wanted to do was to see if industries experienced a jump in productivity sometime after a jump in the number of relevant scientific articles. Now, the trouble with doing this is that pesky word, relevant. So Adams has data on the number of journal articles in fields like biology, chemistry, mathematics. But that's not how industry is organized. Industry is divided into sectors like textiles, transportation, petroleum. And so what scientific fields are most relevant to, say, the textile industries, to the transportation industry, or to petroleum? So to knit the data together, Adams used a third set of data, the number of scientists in different fields that work for each industry. So to see how much the textile sector relies on, say, biology, chemistry, or mathematics, he's going to look at how many biologists, chemists, and mathematicians that that sector employs. And that data does exist. So if this sector employs a lot of chemists, it tells us they probably use a lot of chemistry. If they employ lots of biologists, they probably use biology and so on. So Adams weights the number of articles in each field by the number of scientists working in that field to get a measure of how much each industry relies on different forms of basic science. 
So now Adam says data on the productivity and relative or relevant scientific base of 18 different manufacturing sectors. And so he expects more science will eventually lead to more productivity, but he doesn't know how long that's going to take. Now, if there's a surge in scientific articles in a given year, at what point is he going to expect to see a surge in productivity for industries that rely on that kind of field of knowledge? Now, if scientific insight can be instantly applied, then the surge in productivity should be simultaneous to the surge in science. But if the science has to work its way through a long series of development, then the benefits to industry might show up later. So how much later? Now, to come up with an estimate, Adams basically looked at how strong was the correlation for a five-year gap, a 10-year gap, and a 20-year gap. Uh, specifically, he looked to see which one gives him the strongest statistical fit between scientific articles produced in a five-year span and the productivity increase in a five-year span for industries that use that field's knowledge intensively. And of the time lags he tried, he found the strongest correlation was 20 years. So Adam's study is an important first step, but recent work has largely validated this sort of original finding. For example, nearly 30 years later, a paper by Baldos and a bunch of co-authors in 2018 tackled a similar problem with different data and a more sophisticated statistical technique. Unlike Adams, they focused on a single sector, agriculture. But like Adams, they had two pieces of data they wanted to knit together. On the science side, there's this small group of ag economists that have spent a long time assembling data series on the total R&D spending by U.S. states and the federal government on agriculture. And until recently, governments were this really big source of agricultural research dollars, and so those dollars could be relatively easily identified since they frequently flow through, say, the Department of Agriculture or state experiment stations. And so the upshot is Baldos and co-authors have data on public sector agricultural R&D that goes back all the way to 1908. Meanwhile, on the technology side, the USDA maintains a data series on the total factor productivity of U.S. agriculture from 1949 to the present day. So like Adams, they're going to try and look for a statistical correlation between productivity and research. But unlike Adams, they're going to use dollars to measure science. And unlike Adams, they're going to focus on just one sector. And it's not going to be a manufacturing sector. It's agriculture now. So to deal with the fact that we don't know when research spending impacts productivity growth, they're going to adopt a Bayesian approach. So how long does it take agricultural R&D spending to influence productivity? They don't know, but we can make a few starting assumptions. First, they assume that the impact is going to follow this upside-down U-shape. The idea here is that new knowledge takes time to be developed into applications, and then it takes time for those applications to be adopted across the industry. And during this time, the impact of R&D done in one year on productivity in subsequent years is rising. At some point, maybe say 20 years later, the impact of R&D on productivity growth hits its peak. But after that point, the R&D starts to become less relevant. And so its impact on productivity growth in subsequent years declines. And eventually the ideas become obsolete and have no additional impact on increasing productivity. So that's their first assumption that the relationship will be this kind of bell shape. They also assume that the impact of R&D on productivity after 50 years is just zero. And they assume that the peak impact, so the top of the bell or the top of the upside down U, is going to occur sometime between 10 and 40 years, with the most likely outcome somewhere around 20. 
And that assumption is based on earlier work in agricultural economics that's sort of similar in spirit to this stuff by Adams that we talked about earlier. So given these estimates, they're basically assuming that there's a bunch of different possible distributions for the relationship between R&D spending and productivity. And they assume that the most likely distribution is one peaking around 20 years, and that the further the distribution is from that, the more unlikely it is, but it's still possible. They then use Bayes' rule to update their beliefs, given the data on R&D spending and agricultural productivity, and it will turn out that some of those distributions fit the data really well, in the sense that if that distribution of R&D impacts is true, then the R&D spending data matches productivity pretty well. And other distributions are going to fit poorly, and so they update their beliefs after observing the data, increasing the belief in the ones that fit the data well, and decreasing the expected probability in the ones that don't. And they find with 95% probability that the best-fitting distribution indicates science impacts productivity in agriculture the strongest after 15 to 24 years. And the best single-point estimate is, again, 20 years. So, whether for manufacturing or agriculture, using slightly different data and statistical techniques, we find a correlation between productivity growth and basic science that is strongest around 20 years. But at the end of the day, both methods look for correlations between two messy variables that are separated in time by decades. And it can be hard to make this completely convincing. So a cleaner alternative is to look at the citations made by patents to scientific articles. If we assume patents are a decent measure of technology, and we'll revisit that assumption towards the end of this, uh, and if we assume journal articles are a decent measure of science, then citations of journal articles by patents could be a direct measure of technology's use of science. In the last few years, data on patent citations to journal articles has become available at scale to researchers thanks to advances in natural language processing. If you want some links, uh, check out the newsletter. So do citations to science actually mean patented technologies use the science. I mean, it could be that citations are just meant to sort of pad out the application. But fortunately, there's a lot of suggestive evidence that they do. For one, the people who write these patents and take them out say that they do. Aurora, Bellinzone, and Scheer from 2017 used an old 1994 survey from Carnegie Mellon about the use of science by firms. And they found that firms that cite a lot of academic literature in their patents are also more likely to report in those surveys that they use science in the development of new innovations. And there's also a variety of evidence that patents that cite scientific papers are sort of just different from patents that don't. There's a paper by Watzinger and Schnitzer from 2019, and they scan the text of patents, and they find that patents that cite science are more likely to include combinations of words that had been rare up until the year the patent was filed. And that suggests these patents are doing something new, They don't read quite like older patents. And maybe they're using brand new ideas or insights that they have obtained from science. Maybe. Uh, They also find that those patents tend to be worth more money. And Ahmadpour and Jones uh, have a 2017 paper that we'll talk about a bit more later that find these science-y sort of patents also tend to be more highly cited by other patents. So let's just go ahead and assume for now that citations to journal articles by patents are a decent measure of how technology uses science. What do we learn from doing that? Well, a 2020 paper by Marx and Fugge applied natural language processing and machine learning algorithms to the raw text of all U.S. patents in order to pull out all citations made to the academic literature. And they find that about 29% of patents make some kind of citation to scientific literature. 
more importantly for our purposes, for patents granted since 1976, which is the set of patents they focus on, the average gap in time between a patent's filing date and the publication date of the scientific articles it cites is 17 years. And that's pretty close to the 20 years estimate using the other techniques, especially when we consider that the date a patent is filed is not necessarily the date it begins to affect productivity, which is what the other studies were measuring. So any new, because that's because any new invention that seeks patent protection might take a few years before it's widely diffused and begins to affect productivity. And in that case, a 20 year estimate is pretty close to spot on. Of course, there is variation around that 17 year figure. Amitpour and Jones have a 2017 paper that found that the average shortest time gap between a patent and a cited journal was just seven years. And on the other side, there are also longer and more indirect paths from science to technology than via direct citation. Amitpour and Jones cite Riemannian geometry as an example. So Riemannian geometry was developed by Bernhard Riemann in the 19th century as an abstract mathematical concept. It has no little or no real world application until it was incorporated in Einstein's general theory of relativity. Then later, those ideas were used to develop the time dilation corrections in things like GPS satellites. And that technology, in turn, has been useful in the development of autonomous vehicles. So in a sense, patents for, say, a self-driving tractor owe some of their developments to Bernhard Riemann in the 19th century, but this would only be detectable through a long and circuitous route of citation. But... This paper does follow those long routes of citation. And when those longer and more circuitous chains of citation are followed, Amitpour and Jones find that 61% of patents are connected to science. That is, patents that do not directly cite scientific articles may cite patents that do, or they may cite patents that cite patents that do, and so on. Meanwhile, about 80% of science and engineering articles are connected to patents in the sense that there is some chain of citation that links them to a patent. Now, as an aside, this probably actually understates the number of actual linkages because it's based only on citations listed on a patent's front page. And Marx and Fugi, which we discussed earlier, show additional citations are commonly found in a patent's body of text, but not on the front page. So, Amitpour and Jones compute metrics for the average distance of a scientific field from technological application and these distance metrics line up sort of with our intuitions. For example, material science and computer science papers are fields where we might expect the results to be really applicable to technology. And indeed, they find that these tend to be among the closest fields to uh, patents, to technology. They're just two steps away from a patent. That is, they're cited by a paper that is in turn cited by a patent. If we go back a step further, atomic, molecular or chemical physics papers, would also seem likely to have an application to technology, but only after there's a bit more investigation. And indeed, this field tends to be about three steps removed from technology. That is, cited by a paper, that's cited by a paper, that's cited by a patent. And as we might expect, the field that's furthest from immediate application is actually pure mathematics, and that's five steps removed. As expected, these longer citation paths also take longer when measured in time. The average gap between the shortest path from a math paper to a patent is actually more than 20 years. On the other side of the divide, they also compute the average distance of technology fields to science, and these also align with our intuitions. 
chemistry and molecular biology patents would probably be expected to rely heavily on science, and they tend to be slightly more than just one step removed from science. That is, most of these patents directly cite scientific papers. Further downstream, electrical computers is a field that we might think of as being a bit further away, and it tends to be two steps removed. That is, it tends to cite a patent that cites a scientific article. Ancient forms of technology like chairs and seats tend to be the farthest from science, five steps removed. The average gap between the shortest citation path from a chair or seat patent and a scientific article is over 20 years. So all told, it's reassuring that two distinct approaches arrive at a similar figure. The patent citation evidence is nice and direct. We see exactly what technology at what date cites which scientific article as well as the date that article was published. And this line of evidence finds an average gap of about 17 years, but with plenty of scope for shorter and much longer gaps as well. But the trouble with this evidence is that patents are not a perfect measure of technology. Lots of things do not ever get patented, and lots of patents are for inventions that are just of dubious quality. And for that reason, it's nice to have a completely different set of evidence that doesn't rely on citations or patents at all. When we try to crudely measure science, either by counting government dollars or scientific articles, we can detect a correlation between increases in science and the productivity of industries that are expected to use it 20 years later. And again, with plenty of scope for shorter and longer lags as well. Thanks, everybody. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.